I am just thankful that you're with us this, this Lord's Day, and uh, we're in our fifth week in the book of sec, uh, 1 Corinthians, excuse me. We've just gotten through the second chapter of that text, and I, I don't want to give a full review. Uh, I'd really like to cover a lot of important ground in the 30 minutes we have together, um, but essentially last Lord's Day used the illustration of a watershed. Right, snow melts at the top of a mountain, and as that snow melts and water goes one way or the other, the direction that the flow of water begins to follow ends up often thousands of miles apart. And we talked about the way the scriptures describe God's Holy Spirit at work in us, that the way we view what natural man can do on his own and what the Spirit of God is required to do is watershed. We end up thousands of miles apart from where maybe we would start if we said, hey, I have the capacity in me to choose God, to will my own salvation. I am fully dependent on his spirit. That's what we looked at. And Jesus says similar things in John 7, John chapter 6. He says, out of the heart of man flow streams of living water. And he said this about the Holy Spirit. Or in John 6, we looked at it last week, it's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all, Jesus says in John 6. Isaiah 44, I will pour water on thirsty land, streams on the dry ground. I'll pour out my Spirit on your offspring, and your offspring is going to so be as though springing up beside flowing streams that this one's going to say, I'm the Lord's, and the next one's going to write on their hand that I belong to the Lord, all because of the Spirit of the Lord. And so we looked at that last week, and I just want to give a call out to you before we jump in this week. I hope you were here. I hope you've listened to it online. When the Bible tells us that the flesh is of no help at all in our salvation as well as in our growth, but the Holy Spirit is the person of God that applies Christ to us and works in us, let me just ask you how you've leaned into that this week, and have you been super specific about it? I've been wrestling with some things in my own life, in my marriage, and in my parenting. Those three things. And I've been trying this week, confidentially, just to name things that I'm tired of my own flesh making no progress. <laughs> name those things. I want to challenge you to name those things where your flesh has been no help at all, says Jesus. And so I'm going to just pray that God would give those applications to each of us and that his spirit would work and then we're going to jump into this text which carries it forward. Holy Spirit, would you come like a flood in our time now in your word? Would you work deeply? Um, we do thank you that your word is very clear informing us of our dependence on you and so would we go to that place of dependence and would you show us in our individual lives whether it's in our marriages or it's in our own thought life or it's in parenting or it's in work relationships where our flesh and our plans and our ways of thinking are of no help at all unless your spirit applies your word to us we ask for help in that now go before us as we study this next text together as we grow in Christ and as we are made mature in him I pray this in Christ's name amen so we're going to look at all of chapter 3. It's, it's a chunk to cover in one week, but let me just show you why we're going to do it. The top and the tail of this chapter have the same themes. So Paul is going to talk about divisions in the early part, and he's going to go back to the divisions at the very end. So that's a reason why we would cover it as one unit. Secondarily, 
What I hope you'll see is that the passage starts, and it's on a trajectory. It starts with, you're so immature, is what he says to the church at Corinth. And he ends with what I would describe as a very mature grid of how to live our life. So there's a trajectory to this text as well, from immaturity to maturity. So would you stand with me, and I'll read all of chapter 3. This is God's word. Let's hear it together. Paul says, I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not with solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Apollos, I follow Paul, excuse me, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What, what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. Each one will receive his wages according to his labor. For we're God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you're God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he's wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it's written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. That's one of my favorite new verses in the Bible ever. We'll look at that this morning. Lord, would you bless the hearing and the applying of your word. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Lots to cover, and I'll try to not talk too fast, but fast enough. So you have Paul with affection. He says, brothers. That's how he starts out his words. He says that word 39 times. It, he loves the church at Corinth. It's a term of affection. He says, I want to address you as spiritual persons. I want to talk to you as mature believers, but I can't. You're spiritual babies. And he just piles up descriptions. Verse 1, you're people of the flesh. You're infants. Verse 3, twice he says you're of the flesh. Verse 3, he says you behave only in human ways. Verse 4, he says you're merely human. It's obvious. Paul says you're like fleshly fixating toddlers. 
You're throwing tantrums when things don't go your way. Or you're like children that fight on a playground and, and in a moment decide to swap out their best friend. You're not my best friend anymore. That's what Paul's talking to the church about. He says it's so visible. There's jealousy, strife, comparisons. You exalt people. I fed you with milk when I introduced you to Jesus. I nourished you. I showed you your need. I showed you the, the path of God, his, his son and his glory, his cross, his resurrection, his power, the forgiveness, and that you would only boast in the way of rescue. I fed you milk and it's good. I wish I could feed you with solid food, but you weren't ready for it then and you're not ready for it now. As you know, part of our story is church planting I find this to be an amazing observation. Paul implies here it is very necessary for new believers to immediately be exposed to the deep doctrines of grace. To immediately be exposed to deep, solid nourishment about his sovereignty, about the covenant of grace, about his promises in Christ, about the sacraments and what they mean, about his promise of returning to set up a kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. He says all that stuff I wish I could talk to you about but you're not ready for it. You're stuck in mere human ways and in thinking and in doing. And so what I want us to do this morning is jump to the very end of the passage, starting in the end of verse 21, and I, and I drew it for you. That's my Sharpie marker taking a picture sent to Shannon. Please make this the bulletin outline. I think verse 21 to the end of the chapter is gorgeous and it's a grid of maturity. And I want us to read the rest of the chapter in light of what he says at the end of it. So I'm going to try to draw it even though it's right there. So you said, Paul says, all things are yours, right? This is you. He says, all things. I won't even write it too fast. All things are yours. You've got access to all these things. Then he gives illustrations, right? He talks about people. Paul, Apollo, Cephas. He talks about the world, the world is yours. He talks about things like life and death. He talks about the, the present and the future. He says, all this is yours. And you are Christ's. There's the cross and the resurrection. That's Jesus. And Christ is God's. This is what maturity looks like. All these categories in life that we tend to chase after, they're a gift from God to you. You're full of blessing. And you're also very secure because Christ, you're Christ's. So he stands between you and God the Father and he fully satisfied the law. He showed you the way of holiness and righteousness and beauty and goodness and the right definitions of all things. And Christ is God's. And if we go back to what we talked about last week, who applies all this to our lives and gives us wisdom in how we approach all this? The Holy Spirit does. And so you have Father, you have Son, and you have Spirit, and you have God's own right in the middle of it, secure. So let's just call that a mature grid on life. Right? You can put anything in there. My family, my plans, my vocation, my schooling, the leaders and the people I follow, from sunup to sundown, what I do, my work, how I play, my hobbies, my skills, my money, my time. All that fits in this grid, doesn't it? My peers, my longings, 
And there's just so much protection here. This reminds us of Colossians 3, that your life is hidden with Christ in God. Remember, Christ is the fullness of all things. He is deity in the flesh, and you're, between God and you is him, and you're hidden in that. I mean, you're so secure. Reminds me of also Galatians 4.1. His, the spirit of his son has been put in our hearts, so now we're not a slave at all. We're an heir, we're a son, we're a child of the king. We own everything, ultimately, is the way an heir gets to live their life, right? So we go back to the beginning, though. Paul says, I sure wish I could give you this, I could talk to you with this mature grid. But you're babies. You know what immaturity looks like? Take your piece of paper and flip it upside down. And that was the problem in Corinth. I won't draw it, but just turn it upside down. And you chase after Apollos and Paul and whatever human leader that God's given to you as a gift to equip you to understand the gospel. And you, you find your security and your identity in them. You've been given gifts with which to work and do all sorts of wonderful things. But if it becomes your idol and it's over you and it governs you, you're an infant, you're of the flesh, you're thinking in merely human ways and you're, you're walking all over top of Christ the Son and God the Father. This fallback security that you have, but it's supposed to be your identity. So you worship the creation, not the creator. You have a wrong, disproportional view of leadership given in the church. You may be following mature leaders, but to follow them as though they are your identity and your security is to mean you are very immature. No wonder there's no security there. No wonder they're full of jealousy and strife. Because what happens is everybody is under a different sacred canopy as we looked at our first week in 1 Corinthians. And under that canopy they think is maturity. So they're bickering because who I follow in the way I think is better than who you follow in the way you think. And especially when they're all good but different things, you have a church that's divided, which is the way Paul starts this letter. So he says, you're not wise at all. This isn't actually what your life looks like. Interestingly, um, Pastor Bill and AJ and I, we do our weekly sermon prep. We're like three weeks ahead of the text, and I really benefit from that time with those brothers. But Bill made an, an observation. He said, ultimately, if you flip this grid upside down and you completely take out Christ the Son and God the Father that would then be underneath someone, you basically have the life of a non-believer. Completely unregenerate. I don't believe there's a God. I chase after whatever is going to work for me in the moment. But also at the same time, you take this same beautiful grid and you flip it upside down and you have a Christian who's defined more by the world than they are the gospel and they do have Christ at the, underneath them and they do have God the Father underneath them. It's the same pathway toward giving in to all sorts of dysfunctional realities that bring great pain. And so this, these were Bill's words. A Christian walking and falling into immaturity is actually the same path as an unregenerate person getting further and further away from glorifying God, the creator and redeemer. It's all upside down. So it's not just conceptual though. Paul gets specific and we'll walk into this together. Look in verse five. He said, let's talk specifics. Take for example, Apollos and me. What are we? Interestingly, he says what, not who. Because his, his issue is not who each of them are. His issue is what the church is positioning them to be. So what are we? Paul says, I'm a church planter. Actually, I'm a self-righteous, hypocritical, murderer, Pharisee, turned saint because of God's grace. 
Well, what's Apollos? Do you know what Apollos was? In 2 Corinthians 8.18, he is referenced, most commentators believe, and I'm going to quote the text. The brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. Apollos is like the first celebrity preacher. 2 Corinthians 8.18. That's Apollos. He's gifted. Super competent in his declaration of God's word. But Paul says, what are we? Servants. That's all we are. Yeah, you flipped it. And you've put us as over you, as your leaders and your security and your identity. You fly some banner associated with our name. We're just servants. We're just fellow workers in someone else's field. Both of us have roles that were assigned by the master. Both of us are mutually dependent on each other. Both of us have a vital role, right? The one who plants, the one who waters. But both of us are useless unless God causes the growth. So Paul's first illustration is agricultural. You're God's field. We're, we're just God's servants. But then he moves in right after verse 9 into an architectural illustration. You're God's building. And he says with sort of humble hubris, I guess, I don't know. By God's grace, I'm like a master builder. And way before the Lego movie, there was Paul. All right? I'm a master builder, and I laid the foundation. Someone else, in this case, a man named Apollos, is building on that foundation, but it's the same point. We are mutually dependent on one another. God's like the building inspector. The building inspector will come, let each of us take care how we lay a foundation, how we build on that foundation. The building inspector will inspect the foundation, and it is only to be found as Jesus Christ and his glory and his cross. And the building inspector is going to come and inspect how we build and with what materials. And so he essentially says the day of inspection is going to reveal each one's work. It's going to reveal the materials that, it, that are used. Com, com, consumable things or eternal things. The fire of testing is going to reveal what one builds with. And so you have this phrase, it's often been talked about in 1 Corinthians. You see, see one is saved as though by fire. Folks, I don't think the text is talking about our salvation. It's talking about the work that we do for God's kingdom. And the, the, the fire is, is going to come and it's going to test whether what one built would last beyond this time or what one used to build with will be consumed. And I'll get to that in a second. But then notice in verse 16, he says, we're not just building any building here. You're the temple of God's Holy Spirit. We're talking about God's house. And he's very zealous on this. Note, we won't even unpack it, but he will say, God will destroy the one who destroys his temple. In other words, the one who tries to build on any other foundation and call it the household of God. Okay. I think the easiest way, maybe the most helpful way to dig deep here is I feel like there's an embedded in this passage a biblical theology of work. And so I want this to help you in whatever you do for a living and whatever your work is because yes, the text is about the work that Paul does and the work that Apollos does as ministers of the gospel and as an apostle, but Paul gets very broad here and he essentially starts to say each person's work not just mine and not just Apollos, not just a pastor, not just an apostle. Every person in the household of God, their work is going to be judged. And so I want us to almost treat this like an embedded theology of work, and I hope it will help you. So let's think about work in its broadest sense. 
right? Leadership, management, influence, whatever it is that you do as a human being created in the image of God. Some years ago, Al Genie from Loyola University wrote an article in the Journal of Business Ethics. He says this, he says, as adults, nothing more preoccupies our lives. We will not sleep as much, spend time with our families as much, eat as much, or recreate or rest as much as we will work. Voltaire, 17th century French Enlightenment writer, he said this, maybe if we're lucky, our work will at least keep us from the jaws of three great evils, boredom, vice, and poverty. Maybe, maybe our work will actually drive us toward those evils. Or maybe you love work. Maybe you're one of those people. Every office has one. Gosh, they're so happy to be here. But for most of us, Philip Larkin, the poet, put it very wisely. Work is the toad that squats on our life, Larkin said. Now, now work is creational. Work is from God. Genesis 1, God created a man in his image, blessed them, and God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Work for the glory of the creator. Nathan Bierma, in his, in his book, Bringing Heaven Down to, the earth, to Earth, said this. He said, the filling and the subduing began immediately. Imagine the first time Adam and Eve broke off a branch and used it to rake, to clear, and smooth their living space. And the first time they agreed to take turns raking each morning. Just like that, they had an instrument and an arrangement of responsibilities. Just like that, they began building on the way creation was. So, so work's not evil, work's creational. We are culture makers in God's good creation. However, because of the fall, we're stuck and often sucked into a world where when it's all flipped wrong side, upside down, work takes on a different form. And so Paul's writing to a secular, humanistic culture that's capitalistic, materialistic, entrepreneurial. Their workers, their creators, they clearly celebrated how good their work was. They clearly celebrated what they produced, how well they spoke, who they led, who followed them. It's core to the Corinthian culture, just like it's core to ours. So I think it's appropriate when Paul says, I want to talk to you about what it's like to be a servant in God's kingdom. Paul picks two metaphors, farming and construction. And those are his illustrations because I think his point is very clear. Christian, it's hard work. You should go to bed tired as a servant of the God who gave you work. So on some level, and I think it's hilarious because it's a pastor talking and pastors don't really work, right? He did. He, he built tents. But he's saying, as a Christian, you must think of yourself as one who sweats and works and labors and exerts yourself, whatever you do, every day in response to God's good creation and his redemption in your life for his glory, in his church, for his kingdom's sake. You are servants with hard work to do. By the way, the men who've gone through our deacon training, which we'll be sharing with you who they are next week, this is the Greek word diakonos, guys. You're a servant. You go to bed spent, Christian. Keep this grid in mind. This is you. This is your creator who's given you work to do and he's given you all the blessings at your disposal. But as important as what Paul does and what Apollos did how do they view themselves? Paul says, I wasn't working for myself. We don't, as Christians, work for work's sake. 
We don't work for wealth's sake. We don't work for security's sake or for reputation's sake. We're too insignificant for that. That's what he says. We're just mere servants. That word in Greek, it means to wait on a table. Paul says, don't celebrate Apollos or Paul or Peter as though they're the executive chef. They're just waiting on the table and they don't own the restaurant either. Even the grammar he uses in the Greek is instructive for us. When he says, I planted Apollos water, there's a verb form in the Greek. It's called the aorist tense. It's a, it's a verb form that has, means completed action. You start and you stop. It, we're a blip of time. But when he says God causes the growth, that's an imperfect tense verb. And you know what imperfect means? It never stops. Continual action. So even the grammar, Paul's making the case. Then his specific words about what God does. Verse 5, God assigns the servant. Verse 6, God grows the plants. Verse 8, God inspects and he rewards. Verse 9, God owns the field. He owns the building. So let's get very practical. Do you think that your role and your task today or when you get up in the morning tomorrow, do you think it's uber significant? Some of you may work for Uber, I don't know. But do you think it's super significant? If you see yourself, though, as a servant of God and this is your grid, as opposed to what you really do is find your identity in these things, here's a trick question. Does your significance go up or down? In the eyes of men, it'll go down, but in the eyes of real value and worth, you're serving the creator and the redeemer. Your worth and the value of what you do goes up. Next question for a theology of work. Where do you work each day? Some of you go to construction work sites. Some of you work at home in homeschool. Some of you work in a school. Some of you at a bank or in a doctor's office, in a lab, at a corporation. All of us are on Zoom calls. That's where we work. Where do we go to work every day? There's only one place according to this text. This is amazing. You either work on the foundation of Christ or you don't work in God's sight. That's where you go to work every day. We go to work on the foundation, chapter 3, verse 11, it's Christ. So while you do whatever it is you do, you stand on the foundation of Jesus while you do it. You need his righteousness, his rescue, his sense of purpose while you serve in whatever that you do. Whatever the things down here make you feel, I feel tired, I feel worthless, I feel proud, I feel amazing, I feel disrespected. That's all the stuff that down here causes you to feel. Do you work as one on the foundation of Christ? Do others around you see that by the way you work, that's your foundation? I don't have to get any credit for what I do in this place. I'm just serving the master. Do you tell others that the reason you give your very best is because you've been created in the image of God and he's the great creator and all creativity is rooted back to him and so you love to explore new ideas? So where you work is the foundation. How you work matters, and that's verse 12. With what materials? Gold, silver, or precious stones, or combustible materials like wood, hay, or straw? His point is, do you work with the excellent materials that God's revealed by his gospel for you? So think of Galatians 5, the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Do you work with that material? Or you can get a whole lot of stuff done with manipulation and power and oppression and being a jerk. Those are combustible things that we've burned up. Toward what end do you work? Well, we should work toward the end of building up God's community. We're God's house. It's the temple of his Holy Spirit. But we also, we work for God's reward. And that's there in verse 14 and 15. 
Anyone who works on the foundation of Jesus, his work will survive and he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, if they repent of their sins in Christ, they'll be saved, but nothing that they did will last beyond this time and place. And we don't have time for it now, but this is a massive, massive assumption of the biblical worldview that this is the place where the new heavens and the new earth will be. We don't float away on a cloud and experience heaven and glory somewhere else. The, the theater of redemption from Eden to the new creation is here. And what the Bible is saying is some of what we do right now, if it's built on the foundation of Christ, it will last. That blows my mind. But that's what the Bible's assuming here. So Paul is very, very serious about saying that means everything you and I do, say, think, will be judged. It all matters that much. Which is sort of a terrifying thought. But notice how did the letter start when he says, if you're standing on the foundation of Jesus Christ, when that day comes, chapter 1, verse 8, he will sustain you to the end guiltless on the day of the Lord Jesus. So Paul is serious about every work we do being judged, and he's serious about standing righteous before God through Jesus. Okay, so I told you there was a lot this morning. I, I'm going to stop there. But it's, it's very deep for you and I to live with the biblical worldview of work that Paul is assuming here while he references himself and Apollos. But remember, it's, it's in the context of immature Christians on a trajectory toward a more mature grid of life. And so he's talking to babies, he's talking to toddlers, and just like you would expect, how does he end? He has two commands that's how you have to talk to a child, right? You can't be vague, can't be gray. You got to say the command. So he's got two commands here. And that's where I'll end before we take the Lord's Supper. First command, verse 18. So do not deceive yourself. That's a very tricky command because if you're deceived, you don't know you're deceived. Notice he's not saying don't let them deceive you. He's saying don't deceive yourself. Jeremiah 17, 9. At its core, sin is deception. So what's the command here? He quotes from Job 5, Psalm 94, saying that God sees and God knows he's going to catch the crafty in their ways. Here's what I think he's saying. He's saying, don't have all of this upside down and not know it. That's self-deception. So what's the test by which we can know if we're deceived? And that's the second command. Do not boast in men. Or let me make it broader. Here's your test on whether you're deceived or not. If you boast in anything down here as your identity, that you're super proud of how you function down here, who you follow as a person, how you are, often this is when work becomes a God in our life or you just enjoy coffee or beer or wine a little too much right, or whatever, like you find your identity in these things that are good gifts in the world, right, or your life and death, you have idolized your personal health too far, you've gone too far because this is the path here, or plans, future, present, future, you live according to your calendar as if you're in control of your life, so if, if that's the command, do not boast in men, I think it's if any of these things here are what you boast in, you're immature and you're upside down. So let me read a couple quotes before I close. Pryor in his commentary says this, 
This attitude sees nothing as grounds for boasting because everything and every body is a gift from God to undeserving servants. So it's totally out of place to boast about people or things which quite undeservedly have been placed in the laps of God's children by a lavishly generous God. And we don't have time now, but I find it amazing that in this text, Paul says, everything's yours as a gift. But let me read to you from Galatians 6, 14. Same, it'll sound the same, but it's, it'll say it differently. Far be it for me to boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus by which the world has been crucified to me. So in one text he says, the world's a gift for you. In another text he says, it's dead to you. His point is the same though. It doesn't hold any authority over you. I wish I could tell you that, Corinthian church, but you're just babies and you don't even know how to forgive each other. Okay, so as I stop and we'll take the Lord's Supper, let me ask you, how does this leave you feeling? Kind of shame on me? I'm embarrassed. You ever had this feeling? I'm a grown man, a grown woman. I've got a kid in college now. I was supposed to be so much more mature by now. Shame on me. I'm embarrassed. Anybody feel that way? Don't raise your hand. If this grid proves true, and that's the net result of a text like this, and we see ourselves as children of God, what does a child need? To be shamed because they're so immature? You're just like a little toddler. Doesn't a child need to know how their parent views them? Doesn't a child need to know the eternal security that's theirs? This is a gorgeous grid of life. But some of us need it beaten into our heads like the church at Corinth. Let's pray. Lord, would you be glorified for us to have a grid of life that is according to your word? Would you forgive us when we see ourselves idolizing people or the gifts in this world and this creation or our own personal health and our own personal plans and when we live under these things, these umbrellas, as though they give us an identity, we boast in them, would you forgive us? Would you show us the security we have in Jesus? Would you show us the eternal affection we have as your sons and daughters in Christ, that we can cry out to you, Abba, Father, just like your own son does? And as our text looked at last week, that by your Spirit's help, we can know glory with you in eternity because of this security that we can have now. Help us, we pray. And now as we take the Lord's Supper, would you give us mindfulness that Jesus completed all that's been required for us to be able to live with this mindset. So would we not be self-deceived. We pray this in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Amen.